neuroscience has demonstrated that we actually have three brains. We have a brain in our gut, we have a brain in the heart, we have a brain in the head, but we tend to think in terms of the one in the head only. But our gut is telling us a lot. Our heart is actually telling us a lot. That's Joseph Maguire, facial profiler and body language expert. He is the author of Face Facts, The Art of Reading Your Clients and Prospects for Sales, Negotiation and Recruitment. And his mission is to help people have deeper, more exceptional relationships and shares with us some insights around how key behavioural and personality traits, communication styles and even stress patterns are imprinted in a person's physical state. Powerful stuff to understand before you utter one word in any interaction. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. Joseph is many, many things, but how I was introduced to him was, have you ever met this guy that does facial profiling? And I went, oh no, I'm a bit scared, but maybe I will meet him. And what a wonderful meeting it was. Thank you so much for joining me, Joseph. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Fanola. It's lovely to lovely to be here. And we have, yes, we have had various conversations over the years and it's, it genuinely is always a pleasure. Oh, ditto, ditto. But I love... Uh, how you describe your journey, because, you know, I'm always really interested in how someone starts and where they are on the journey, where they think they're where they think they'll go and the ups and downs, the highs and lows, all that good stuff. But you knew from a very young age and I think a lot of people know where they're meant to be at a very young age somewhere, you know, somewhere it registers, something clicks that, ah, oh, yeah, I remember back when I was. But you talk very openly about from a very, very young age that you could read people. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I just intuitively knew stuff about people, particularly men. Um, like I openly admit that women remain a great mystery, but then most men, if they're <laughs> honest, will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, um, love and it. Men, men are actually simple, straightforward creatures, even though many women don't actually believe that. But men to me are very straightforward. And it was um, like I, I, I have a memory of sitting on the floor in my parents' home. I was obviously very small. It was probably even pre-verbal and just wow. intuitively knowing stuff about my, my, my uncles or my, maybe some of my father's colleagues who might have been in the house. And not, not like deep, intimate stuff, but I just knew stuff about the personalities. And I, in, again, intuitively knew who wasn't really being completely honest or wasn't really being open. Mm. I was kind of holding back on stuff. And then like my father used to bring me, he introduced me to football at a very early age. And he used to bring me to soccer matches. And I can actually remember him carrying a wooden box on his shoulder for me to stand on so I could see over the side of the pitch in Daly, at the old Daly Man Park in Dublin. And uh, again, watching, watching, the, watching the matches, I could see patterns of play before they developed. I could see who was going to move where. Um, I, again, I could see which players as we would say, were throwing shapes, but weren't really committed. And how did you know that? Do you know? I just knew it. It was before I 
probably had the capacity even to think. So I just, I just, I just to me it was obvious. I just assumed that that at that stage everybody was doing it and everybody could see it. And it really surprised me later in life to realize, oh, you don't see that. And to me, it's so obvious, yeah. you know. And so does more, that mean that yeah. you're em- empathic or highly sensitive or? You know, because we've got labels for everything these days and we, you know, I just curious. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's the, the whole thing of being empathic, it, it covers a broad range of territory. So I'm, mm. I'm empathic in the sense that I can pick up on stuff from people very quickly. I'm not empathic mm. in the sense that I get caught up in their emotion or the, the, if you like, the drama of their story. Like I was a therapist for 30 years and where people would often tell me very upsetting stuff, like really, really horrendous tales of what had happened to them and what they'd experienced. But I wasn't caught up in the emotion of that. I was there as a listener to be present with them, to be present for them and to help them move forward from that place and, and to not be stuck in the story. Um, but, yeah. but but it was very much about um, being, being with them and I say being present and, and being attuned to where they were at, not just to, if you like where they where they come from, where they were at now, and where mm. they could be, and very, and more often than not, they couldn't see where they could be. And there's an old Chinese saying that you, if you don't change direction, you'll end up where we, where you're headed. And so often, and, and I've been there, I've been there enough in my own the drama of my own story at times, and where I couldn't see beyond where I was at, and I couldn't see anything beyond the you know the darkness and the difficulty but when we when we when we can step back from that or help other people step back from it realize oh there's a whole other realm of potential there yeah whatever happened to us like this like the carl jung saying that i'm not what i'm not what happened to me i'm what i choose to become and that's an immensely liberating statement but until we get it we don't really get it and it's yeah. it's so it's so freeing and and Again, like from both personal and professional experience, I could see other people. I could see myself where there was in being in that place of oh, I can't see beyond where I'm at, and it's like it's like wearing a blindfold or blinkers or whatever. But when we realise that the past is the past, that we're not, it's not actually there now, and that we don't mm. have to carry it as this weight. And it's oh wow, it's like just this big sigh of relief, and it's. It's like being in that place of childlike wonder again. And it's, oh, what, what would I like? What would I like to be? And it's, 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 it is important to be very, very clear about our values and to live according to the values and not, be, not just think anything is possible and, oh, I can do anything and it doesn't matter. There's no consequences. I don't mean, don't mean anything ridiculous like that. But when we're clear about the values and we realize the past is no longer with us, it's just like, the world opens up in a whole new way. Wonderful. Do you think that that ability was that ability to step back something you learned in your in your life and in your professional life or your own personal development? Or was that also innate? No, I've had to learn it because I got caught up with enough (laughs) more than enough of my own drama over the years. Absolutely. So it's like us all. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just part of the the human experience, but it's it's and it's and it's an ongoing thing because, like, um, one story I like to tell is um, a friend of mine many years ago was very actively involved in Zen meditation, and he mm. um, he 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 formed a um, a group to to meditate together in in Dublin, and they used to have this uh, Japanese Zen monk would visit every so often and he he basically traveled around the world visiting groups like that and he had no like he had no possessions he had no no attachment to being rich or any of that stuff he would just visit he would have his expenses paid his travel expenses he would be put up in accommodation and he was apparently like the epitome of zen very calm and cool mm. and collected but one day he was on a he was getting on a he wanted to go to dublin city center and he was getting on a bus and the bus was was um, exact fare only, and he only had mm. I think a ten or twenty euro note, so he wasn't allowed on the bus, and he lost it completely. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful story. And I don't I don't mean that I, I that I, that I I wish the man pain or anything like that, but I was it was heartening to hear that even somebody with that level of life preparation and dedication to meditation and being being that calm, cool person can be really freaked out. And it just shows we are all part of the same collective, you know. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> I'd love to return to um, where it all started for you. And because you had this kind of interesting journey of uh, studying macrobiotics and you told me the story of going to, I think it was London, and studying something and then discovering, and I'm probably saying this incorrectly, Mian Shang. Okay. Um, my my yeah. Part, yeah, <laughs> I know my, by that reaction yeah, that yeah, it was really yeah. bad. <laughs> well, no, it's the thing is my my partner is Chinese, and when I when I've yeah. said it to her, she just looks at me. So there's there's some subtleties in the pronunciation. It's something like Mian Shang. Mian Shang. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds much better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go before that and then let's mm -hmm. figure out how you 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 um discovered that. Yeah, um well, again, there was no plan. Um I was introduced to macrobiotics before I left Dublin. And I mm. basically what happened was I had a knee injury from playing football which I did all through my life growing up and um I went to see an acupuncturist. Well, I went to I went to the Matter Hospital first, and they couldn't. They just messed me. I didn't do anything basically. Just wrapped my knee up in bandages and useless. Uh, but anyway, I, I I went to an acupuncturist. I, I was for some reason I was open to acupuncture. That was back in 1980, and um, mm. the guy I saw, the acupuncturist I met. Uh, recommended that all his patients change their diet to a natural foods diet. And I had come to him from having lunch in McDonald's. So I was nowhere near healthy <laughs> eating or anything like that. But for some reason, yeah. I was completely open to it. So I literally, he gave me a list of foods to eat, list of foods not to eat. And for some reason, I was completely open to it. So I literally went back into the city center, bought a list of these foods I was supposed to eat, went home and put them on the kitchen table. And like a good Irish man, I wasn't able to cook. So I asked my mother, could she cook this for me? And <laughs> it was, and she, was she had no idea what the stuff was. Um, so anyway, it was like, it was like eating what I would imagine a mixture of polyphyla and gravel would be like. 
but for some reason I got incredible energy from it. So I was fascinated by by that because I was like I was very fit, but my my energy levels just went through the roof. And so mm. I, as, yeah. as I was go, as I went back to the acupuncturist, I I I was started getting information from about how to cook the food and how to use it, etc. Um, and then I knew I, I was going to, I was moving to Israel for a time. And then I knew I would be in London at some point. So he gave me an address to follow up this information. And it was when I, when I went to London, I actually went for a, a, a meal in the vegetarian restaurant at this place was, which was a center. And, um, that's mm -hmm. where I started the training. So there wasn't mm -hmm. a plan. It just, life just kind of presented stuff for me. Fantastic. And then the Mian Chung. Yeah, well, the training, I, I signed up for what was initially a three-month training, and I assumed it was going mm. to be primarily about microbiotics and whole food and nutrition and and just sort of that that aspect of, of focus on health. But um, Shiatsu was part of the course, and as part of the Shiatsu training, we were introduced to facial diagnosis, Mian Chung. And when I was introduced to that, it was just like light bulbs going off everywhere because it enabled me to explain what I could see. It enabled me to put a structure on explaining it, even though what I was doing and what I was seeing was actually a little bit different. But people tend to like to have a structure rather than saying, oh, I just know that. I, if I could say, yeah. oh, I can see that here on your face, then it, it's easier for to, to communicate. It's easier to make sense. So do you feel that that gave you the language and the framework to explain what you knew as a child? It began to. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just immersed myself yeah. in it more and more. And then I was I was working like I did a number of other courses, a whole series of other courses afterwards. And I was then also working with one of my teachers in his health food store. So when somebody would come into the store, he would immediately ask, okay, what's his condition? What's her condition? So I was getting like full on training in, in reading faces in the diagnostics particularly. Um, so I was, I was literally completely immersed in it. And it, it just brought the, if you like, the, the innate abilities or the intuitive abilities very much to the surface. And they were just in constant use. And did he, when he was asking you to do that, was it with a view that you were able to serve the customer better yeah. because you knew what was wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So we were mm. like, we were using food as medicine. So, yeah. So we were able to, to tell, say, recommend particular foods as opposed to others or and particular foods in combination. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And you still do that today. Like I know that. So I know what you do now is you've moved into um, a more corporate environment, a business environment. Share with us what you're doing now with these techniques. Yeah, what I'm doing now is more, I suppose, clinical is probably the most appropriate word. But um, actually what I've been finding over the last year year and a half is the more individual conversations i'm having with business people and this is people across the globe not just in ireland the more human the conversations are where people are opening up in a in a way that they certainly weren't opening up when meeting in person and obviously most of what i'm doing is is now online um and so no say it, that again now explain that to me again you think you think that we have less 
barriers now because we're not in person. Yeah, for some reason, really? I don't I don't fully understand it. And I'm not the only person who's like I have discussed this with other, others as well. Um, but for some reason, people seem to be less inhibited in being on screen rather than meeting face to face. The concern at the time was that you wouldn't get a true experience if you're online. You had to be in person. Isn't that so interesting now? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not saying it's the case with everybody, um, but mm. maybe, maybe. Uh, maybe I'm just meeting a higher quality of person. I'm being facetious with that. <laughs> <laughs> Present company included, of course. Um, <laughs> good, good save there. <laughs> um, um, but it is, it is. Um, I guess I am meeting more people who are concerned with building authentic relationship with with the human as opposed to just doing business. Um, but equally, I'm, I'm aware of research into um, work of on people who are doing a lot of Zoom, particularly Zoom groups. And I, I, I use Zoom as a generic term because obviously there's, there's a whole variety of yeah, other platforms yeah. there. Um, but like, and, and some, of the, some of the research I've come across in, from psychologists has been quite interesting. And two of the things they're finding is that people, many people are reporting that they feel very insecure when they're in group meetings because they think that the people they're, they're seeing on screen are either more successful than them or better looking. And the other, the other one which I found particularly interesting was that because like, we're not accustomed to seeing a multitude of faces looking at us simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, and so apparently, apparently one, one other response that's being triggered in people is um, feelings of, of aggression. They feel like that these faces are almost attacking them, so they have to, you know, they have to to gear it up and and, and almost be prepared to deal with to, to to deal with an attack. Wow, I haven't heard that. I it makes sense to me that there is that in a group environment that things can feel bizarre. Yeah, because that makes sense to me that having so many people look at you at the same time, it's like you're on a permanent stage. That kind of makes sense to me. The aggression. Why do you think, why do you think that's happening? Again, I'm not a psychologist and I'm very clear about that. I know, but it's uh, interesting. But, but my, my, my supposition, and it goes back probably to working with so many, treating so many people over like 30 years as a therapist, that um, I, I, I learned very early on that Pretty much everybody, and it doesn't matter how successful people are, pretty much everybody has some deep level of insecurity within them. Um, yeah. So when we're faced with all of these faces apparently peering out at us, and like the reality is everybody's more concerned with themselves rather than the multitude of faces, but it seems to trigger that level of insecurity that people feel, oh, they're attacking me, they're coming at me, or or something along those lines I, I like i don't pretend to fully understand it but that's just my sort of top of the head guess as it were yeah it's very interesting because it it says to me that we should try to understand that a little bit more you know so your work now is has moved from uh, a one to one space or explain to me explain to the listeners how we get this beautiful ancient chinese uh, system of understanding somebody and how that translates into business. 
Okay. Well, I have over the last couple of years, in particular, I guess I was always, I was always, always using and using body language as well because that was just innate within the, the study. Um, so I was always mm. observing people's body language. Um, obviously, we're not seeing, particularly when we're on screen like this, we're only seeing the top top half of the body and not even that we're seeing primarily like head neck and shoulders um but mm. i've also over the last the last couple of years in particular um done a lot of study with some former fbi trainers and, and some if you like more advanced body language techniques and in the areas of like interrogation and uh, negotiation and I'm scared so, now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so people don't realize how much they're revealing, even without even, even without doing or saying anything. Apparently, doing or saying anything. Mm. Um, mm. So, what I'm what I'm doing, I, I do work with individuals, but I also work with groups. Um, so, when it comes mm. to working with individuals, I'm helping them with their their confidence, the clarity of their presentation, the clarity of communication, because um, one of the key things is that technically we may be speaking the same language but we're not necessarily speaking the same language in reality because we all process language differently we all process information differently so i'm helping mm. um, i'm helping people both individually and within teams to recognize from the visuals how somebody processes information and how they need to be communicated with if you want to get the best out of the the interaction whether that's on a personal level. Can you give me an example? Yeah, for example, one of the key things is to simply look at people's eyebrows because the eyebrows are very revealing. Even And yes, I do know many women scope their eyebrows, but the eyebrow shape <laughs> will tell you a lot about how people process and absorb information. So for example, if the eyebrows are very, very straight across, then these mm. people are primarily logical, linear thinkers and they process information in a more systematic way. If the eyebrow is more, more curved, then when you meet somebody with, with curved eyebrows, they need to feel you are present with them as a person, even in a, even in a very complex business engagement. They need to feel a personal connection rather than just be engaged with the information, discussing the information, the details, etc. cetera. Um, if the eyebrows are particularly thin, then they prefer information in like bullet points. If you give mm. them, if you talk too much, you give them too much information at once, they feel overloaded. Whereas if the mm. eyebrows, like I've got fairly thick eyebrows, if you, if the eyebrows are thick like that, if I feel you're not giving me enough, enough information, I wonder, okay, what are you holding back? Oh, that's so interesting. So, so just looking at the eyebrows, by themselves, like every part of the face provides information, but just looking at the eyebrows by themselves gives you a quick insight into how they process information. So if you were in a team, do you do an exercise where you're getting them to look at at each other's eyebrows? Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So it means that you would be, even when you're looking at your boss or your colleague, I mean, we we can touch, we can move into the space of a manip of manipulation now. You know that? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I'm very, I'm very conscious that I, I have to be very conscious about my clear about my values and my ethics. But I can't control how anybody uses any of the techniques. Um, I do emphasize mm. in any training I do, whether it's for with an individual or a group, where I'm coming from and why 
why those values are important because the reality is when we work in a in a in an honest and ethical way with people the relationship goes deeper the trust element is so mm. important the respect element is so important whereas if we manipulate i've i've just seen it time and again the relationship disintegrates and people people feel as much as anything that they can't really trust you or they need to be wary and you don't get you don't get the same level of productivity never mind anything else but you think somebody can get really good at manipulation and you not know it um i at this stage i would say i would know it but yeah clearly a lot <laughs> uh, clearly and i'm not I, you know i'm not trying to be smart with that answer but clearly a lot of people aren't observant enough and yeah and and there are you know i have come up uh, come across enough narcissists, bullies, manipulators out there. I've probably come across a few sociopaths. I don't know about psychopaths, but certainly sociopaths, and they do exist, um, and who are very good at picking up on people's vulnerabilities very, very quickly and using them. There's no question about that. So on a counterpoint, does that mean that understanding techniques like this can also protect us? Yeah, but the, the reality is, we in our in our evolution as as a species, like we've only had verbal language for somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand years, which is actually a, a small drop in the ocean in terms of how long we've actually been here as a species in various forms. Um, and so, prior to that, we we communicated with body language, with facial expression, with gestures, and that is still in our DNA. And what unfortunately many people have forgotten is that our whole body is actually an antenna and our whole body is continually receiving and transmitting information. And it is, it is innate within us to be able to recognize that. And like we talk about things like gut feeling, um, like mm. neuroscience has demonstrated that we actually have three brains. Uh, we have a brain in our gut, we have a brain in the heart, we have a brain in the head, but we tend to think in terms of the one in the head only. Um, but our gut is telling us a lot. Our heart is actually telling us a lot. Uh, like the HeartMath Institute in the US has measured that the, the, the brain in the gut and the brain in the heart actually transmit more, more messages up to the brain in the head than vice versa. Mm. So our whole body mm. is picking up this information. So if you get a, if you get a vibe, and I, I just use that term, that somebody is maybe not to be trusted or maybe just to need to be a bit wary, pay attention then check for the evidence but pay attention to what that feeling is first there's a book and i can't remember the name of it is outliers he wrote outliers but he also oh, wrote yeah, another malcolm book malcolm gladwell malcolm gladwell yeah and he wrote a book that was like about this thing about and i can't remember the name blink, of it do you remember blink, the name of it blink blink that's yeah. it and yeah. that you're because you pick up that information that fast and it's when our brains get in the way that convinces us to not listen. Yeah, it's called thin slicing. Explain that. I like that. It's a new yeah, word. where we have that, where we have that, where we have that instant, instant recognition of yeah, this this person's okay, this person's of not truth. okay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But then we get into reasoning and second guessing and doubting and and all of that, and and we're, we've we've become trained out of that awareness. Um, now I, I always say to people. Trust your gut, but then check for the evidence. 
But while, when you trust your gut and you get a feeling that somebody is not okay, for whatever reason, make sure you're not exposing yourself emotionally to them. You're not making any emotional commitment. You're just being there and you're observing. You're paying attention. You're listening. And even then, when you're listening, you're not just listening to what they say. You're listening to how they say it um, and whether it rings true or not. And one, one exercise I, I recommend people do, actually, if I, I don't have a TV, but if, if, if somebody does have a TV and you're watching politicians being interviewed, particularly if they're being, shall we say, expressive, watch it with the sound on and then rewind and watch it with the sound off and ask yourself if what you're now watching with no sound correlates with what you watched with the sound on. And you'll often find with politicians. Oh, that's a good one. It's it's yeah. It's like two different people. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to try that, Joseph. But this makes me think of when I think about you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say this earlier because I was going. This is interesting. I must have to ask him this. You are very when whenever anytime I, I see you, you do videos. I know that. And when we talk. You are slower to respond, to speak. I can see it in you. And so this is kind of making sense to me that this slowness of, of using words to communicate, I, I see it in you. And now this kind of makes sense to me that you are, are you, you're in antenna mode first before yeah. you speak. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Yeah. Not all the time. If I'm, if like, if I'm in a social situation with people, I don't. I'm, I'm not actually particularly comfortable doing small talk. But if I'm in a, and so I, 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 I don't have an especially active social life. Well, I suppose we've we've all kind of evolved out of that over the last couple of years. But if I'm involved in, if I'm involved in a social situation, um, I do I do a lot more listening than speaking. And then when I when I mm. speak, I do tend to speak more slowly. Like I know. Uh, like one of my, my younger daughter, for example, speaks really fast and I have to tell her to slow down. Um, so when people, when, so there's a number of things to that, a number of aspects to that. Number one, when people speak really fast, it tells me there's a little bit of nervousness there. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. there may be, there may be, in some cases, they may just be overfueled on coffee. Um, but yeah. also when, when you're speaking really fast, you're not really communicating authority. You're not really communicating clarity or confidence. If you notice, like the, the people, yeah, the people who have real leadership qualities tend to present with a little more, take a little more time with it. They're not just bang, 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 bang. So whether it's their gestures or whether it's their speech, they take a little bit more time, and they're willing to use silence. They're they're willing to use space. They don't just they don't just throw all the information at you. Because they're comfortable in the space. Yeah, it, they're comfortable in their skin first. And they communicate yeah. that by how they present themselves even before they speak. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm here going, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> Says she very fast. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting. Well, people are, people are endlessly fascinating. And I notice that your pace changes when you're excited, like the rest of us. I oh, mean, yeah. that makes complete Absolutely. sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And if any of us just speak in a monotone, we're going to, we're going to fall asleep 
while we're speaking anyway, and we're going to put our listener to mm. sleep. So if we just speak in the same tone, we have to adapt our tone according to the, the needs of the situation. And, and, you, and you can't really do that. Geez, I couldn't anyway. You could, couldn't just do that clinically or deliberately. You have to be allow mm. yourself to be human. And so when you're, when you're excited, when you're animated, express that, you know? Um, so sometimes mm. it'll, sometimes it'll be slower. Sometimes it'll be faster, but it has to be. Otherwise, otherwise, like we're just like a, you know, a, a mannequin in the shop window. We have as much presence as, you know. How is this being received in the corporate world? Yeah, it's, it's. Um, do they like it? Well, more, more people do like it. Yeah. I'm, 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 I've been building uh, stronger connections. Um, what I've found is more receptive internationally than in Ireland. And predict that's one of that's one of the blessings. Like I was very, I was very resistant when lockdown happened. First of all, to being primarily online, I, and I actually had that idea that it was going to be two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, it was a long two weeks, <laughs> um, yeah. so I wasn't I wasn't really prepared for it. But once I once I really um, embraced it, I found that it the world opened up quite literally in terms of the number of connections I could make outside of Ireland and the conversations I could have, the relationships I could have, and so. I found that people, particularly in the US, Canada, Australia, were far more open, far more open-minded, far more responsive. So um, why do you think that is? I think we're I think we have a lot of mythology about ourselves on this island, um, that we're we're <laughs> this, you know, happy, clappy people, you know, the, the party people of the world and, and all of that. But we're still in many respects deeply insecure. Um, very conservative in many ways and also, also probably because of our history there's still an element of being suspicious and like i have i have looked at our history in some depth over the years i've just been fascinated by history anyway but like we had we had so many years of being oppressed suppressed um for in all sorts of ways um so we learned we learned to be suspicious and unfortunately, I think there's still remnants of that in our in our makeup, um, and particularly when somebody does what I do, which is reading people. Like people, I've had that reaction on more than a few occasions that people can think I'm looking into their soul, you know, and reading their deepest, darkest secrets, which I'm not doing. And and even if I could do it, I wouldn't want to do it. Uh, mm. But people sometimes have that have that feeling of the response, and I can see the fear sometimes. Uh, but for me, it's not where I'm coming from. I would I would know that about you. Um, it's interesting that I had a conversation with someone recently and, you know, we're a we're a very old nation and a very old people, but we are essentially a very young democracy. And um, and someone mentioned to me, a friend of mine in Germany mentioned to me, but what's very interesting about Ireland is we are more left, more uh, more open, more human than everything that's happening in the world, the bias towards right. So I think that's interesting that while you said, and I, I, I believe that to be true, that, you know, that leftover history of oppression, uh, being a colony and all that kind of stuff. But I still, I still see us as being people are holding, uh, a more human 
kinder it's a kinder society do you how do you feel yeah we've never really had that those kind of extremes of left or right here and i think that's a that's a massive yeah. blessing maybe maybe the country's too young for it i don't know um like we don't know obviously what the future's going to bring but um there's also I mean, the, the definitions of, of right and left have become also quite blurred. Like some, some there's obvious extremes. There's obvious extremes on both sides, but there's a lot of there's a lot of blurring as well. So um, yeah, I'm I'm thankful we haven't had those extremes here. Um, clearly, yeah, there, there are little the, pockets. There are little pockets there. There's no there's no doubt about that. And hopefully, they won't grow. I hope so. I just I'm I'm marrying these two ideas of. Um, other nations being more open to this uh, uh, skill set that you bring to the market and and who we are as a people. It's kind of interesting to me just how we match those two things. I believe those two things to be true. I'm just I'm just observing they seem to be contradictory. Yeah, um, there's also there's also a responsibility on me in terms of how I communicate it. And obviously I get that, like, I know I can if I choose to, I can make people feel very uncomfortable by do, by saying nothing. I know how to do that. I can I can do I can do it very well. You know. Don't do it now. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no. It's like the old Mel Brooks movie, silent, silent, yeah, silent movie. And there was yeah. there was on, there was only one word in the movie, and that was spoken by um, what was his name? Uh, the 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 mime. Um, I can't remember the guy. I should remember the guy's name, but he only, he said one word in the movie. But he was he was a guy who was actually a mime in real life. But I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't inflict that on you in an interview. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that's interesting. So tell me how have things in your journey, in all that you've learned, and because you say it very clearly that it wasn't planned that you went with this idea of flow. And I always think of this great book by Michael Singer called The Surrender Experiment, oh, yeah. where he says, "Beautiful, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And it's just an amazing, amazing book. I recommend it highly. I loved it. And it feels like that kind of journey you've taken. Um, somewhat, yeah, somewhat. I've I've probably encountered a lot more obstacles. It's been it's probably like I, I've I've read uh, Michael Singer's books. I've listened to a lot of his talks, and his story is immensely powerful. Like he he was he was uh, completely dedicated to like if you start if you look at the start of his story, the the, the level of meditation he got into, the level of yoga yeah. practice he got into. He was so he was very very grounded really in making that commitment to the surrender to yes um i mm. definitely wasn't anywhere near as anywhere near as grounded i didn't have the life awareness so i've been i just i'd say my journey has been more like being in a pinball machine where i've been <laughs> i felt like i was being flipped around and turned upside down on more than a few occasions you know the way you said about the three brains yeah do you think that you 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 had to, well, we all have to learn this, but did you think, do you think that you had to listen more, that you should have listened more? I hate should, I hate that word, but forgive me for it. But do you think that you, if you had listened more to your gut and your heart, it would have been less of a pinball? No, in fact, I did listen more to my gut, probably not enough to my heart, but I, I listened more to my gut than to my head. So I kind of, 
I went with a, I went, I, I've been immersed in Oriental philosophy for many, many years, particularly I've been like, I, I, I don't belong to any tradition. I'm not affiliated to any tradition, but I've been hugely influenced by Taoism and aspects of particularly mm. Zen, Zen Buddhism, Zen Buddhism and aspects mm. of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and I, I very much went with, with my gut. Um, but I, I guess my, my gut wasn't always as clear as it might have been. And I, I didn't necessarily, I, I shut off a lot of the, the logical side of things. So I didn't always do myself the most favors because the reality is the three brains should be aligned. They should be working and again, together. The word, I, I will use that word should. They, they should be working together where one of mine was working, working overtime. One was kind of semi working and the other was on holiday. To a large extent, what's the difference between the gut and the heart? The gut is um, the, the the heart is more the feeling. The, the heart is where okay, the base yeah. of compa compassion and the feeling of the connection with humanity. The, yeah. the, the sense that the, not just the sense, but the awareness that we are, whether it's whether it's two people talking or a group of people being together, we are all part of. A, a, a greater collective we are all part of the same species we are all for want of a better term in this together yeah and there's a need there's a need there's a like there's an innate need within us to connect with other human beings and to share experience to share not to be not to be all hippie and new age about it but to actually experience uh to experience love together and to experience kindness and that really, when it comes down to it, that's more and more what I'm looking to bring into my into my business engagements, my business experiences. I have a lovely um, thing that I read in a book once that we all, if you think about how words, the letters that form words and that we're all taking the journey alone, A-L-O-N-E. But when we bring love into the equation and we then become all one, which is A-L-L, -L, which is the other love, O-N-E. And I always think about that. So we might have to take the journey alone, but we are all in it together. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the reality is, again, like some of, some of the modern sciences, particularly quantum physics, neuroscience, are showing us that we are all actually connected, you know, um, I know he wasn't a he wasn't a neuroscientist, but Carl Sagan, some of his some of his quotes have, have been so enriching for me in terms of that connectivity, the fact that we are literally we are the stuff the cosmos is made of. We're all mm. like we all have aspects of you know the the the, the big bang within us, the the remnants of the mm. big bang. We're all breathing in molecules and air that possibly were were visit you know were, were breathed by. Jesus Christ or Buddha or, you know, Winston Churchill or whoever. And we're not separate Please from not each Churchill. other. Well, you, well, you know, the thing is we're all capable of great things and some pretty horrible things too. What would you like to leave people with today? Um, I guess... It's when it comes down to it for me, my, what I'm really about is, is helping people to create exceptional relationships. That's, that's basically my mission. 
when it comes down to it. Whether, whether, and, and that applies across the board, pro professional lives, personal lives. Um, and it's to, I'm really about helping people to open up to themselves first, because it starts inside, and then open up to each other. And I'm not talking about being naive, because there's no, I don't place any value on being naive, and I've been there. I spent enough time there as well, but I don't place value on that because then we leave ourselves open to being manipulated and going back to an earlier part in the conversation. But when we have these, when we have these skills, when we're able to really observe and see, see other people, see the essence of who they are, the, see the best of them as well as potentially the worst, then it, it's, it, 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 it like, it, it has a, it gives us a level playing field where we are all in it together. And then we can be real with each other. And then we don't have to wear the armor. We don't have to have these defenses that we all we all carry, whether we like it or not, the masks we wear. And we can be real. And then we can have far more enriching experiences personally and professionally. And it's to help people get over that block that so many of us, again, have had or have where we don't feel we can trust. But then it come, that really comes from inside. We're not fully trusting ourselves either. And it's allowing ourselves to be vulnerable in a in a way that recognizes that vulnerability can be a great strength. It's not a weakness. And I'm not talking about, you know, blubbing all over somebody. I, I'm, I'm not talking about that kind of, you know, being an emotional jelly or an emotional mess. I'm just talking about being real. This is this is how I am. This is what's going on for me. And we we when we trust ourselves, we can build an incredibly deep level of trust with other people as well, so that we're not trying to outdo each other. And again, that is not a naive vision. It's possible, um, but it's to do it step by step by step. I believe you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful place to leave people on. Thank you so much for your time, Joseph. Oh, thank you, Fanula. Absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Joseph, Check him out on clearsightcommunications.com. And if you'd be so kind to share this episode with someone you know who would find it valuable, I would greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to reach out to me about the podcast or anything else marketing or entrepreneurship related, check out finolahoward.com. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care. <laughs>